Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to take a look at the new Brad Pitt film, Ad Astra. Uh, pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. Uh, we're also going to take a look at the Peter Jackson-directed documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, a World War I... Uh, a look back at World War One on HBO, uh, so check that out if you haven't seen it yet. We're going to talk about the rise of the television movie, all right? Believe it or not, it's making a comeback in some fashion or another, and we're going to do that in our Death of Cinema segment in between our two reviews. And before we get to everything, we need to talk about the news. The first big story this week, Jonah Hill is in early talks for a villain role in Robert Pattinson's The Batman. Andy, what is happening (laughs) in Hollywood today? Well, we're getting Uh, closer and closer to uh, the reality of the next Batman film. And speculation of villains is always a fun part of that. I remember when the uh, Dark Knight Rises came out and... uh, or before it came out, there was all this speculation of who it was be. Johnny Depp is going to be the Riddler, Mr. Freeze, all this stuff. So we've gotten some reality here. And like you said, um, Jonah Hill is in talks to either play the Penguin or the Riddler. Yeah, uh, either or. Any, any <laughs> Real quick before we get into this, could he play anything else? Or is this just what the rumors are saying he's going to be one, one or the other of? Mm, I mean, you could bring up... Uh, a lesser Batman villain, but you know, you got to stick with things people know. I, I won't, would really like to see a Clayface because I think he's he's a really interesting character, very tragic uh, backstory and villain. Um, so they're probably not going to do that. And also, how you, how you bring that on screen is kind of a challenge as well. So yeah, it's you got to go with someone popular. Yeah, it's definitely got to be somebody popular. Um, I think that much is true. Man, for Jonah Hill, I I would be bummed to be in the public uh, sphere for this conversation, right? Because you think of Jonah Hill, the fat kid from Superbad, <laughs> and you think of the two the two villains on offer here. Like naturally, I think people are drawn towards the Penguin, <laughs> yes. which is a bummer to like be just be scuttled over to that side of the conversation because I'm sure. Being that he's been in, in a couple of Academy Award-nominated films uh, and is an Academy Award-nominated actor at this point, I'm sure he'd probably love to play the Riddler, right? There's a certain amount of mystique there and fun. Yeah, and and the Riddler, previously portrayed by Jim Carrey, is it was a very cartoonish version, so you could get a bit, little bit more serious, more grounded, more kind of a evil genius uh, version of of him uh, this time around. Uh, it's also important to know this article says that uh, Jeffrey Wright um, from Westworld fame is uh, going to be playing uh, Commissioner Gordon, or yeah. rumor, rumored to at least. It's certainly shaping up to be a different kind of Batman film, and I'm excited. Uh, I don't I don't think that's a bad thing, especially after seeing Batman's former iteration played by Ben Affleck. Uh, my hot pick for Jonah Hill: uh, he should play the ventriloquist. In, in, in a bad film. Ooh, good choice. I think that would be dope, and I don't think that will happen because uh, he's not nearly popular enough. Um, but he's got the glasses, and he's got kind of that, I don't, I don't know, he's got that kind of crazy approach. Anyway, uh, more on the Batman films, I guess, in the future uh, as this developments approach. The next story, Netflix goes negative for the year, gives up a 46% stock market gain that it's had all through 2019. It is now flipped. It is doing poorly. Hot takes on this, Andy. Um, well, what this is a sign of, it's not that Netflix is doing poorly. It's about all the big competitors that are entering the field. Of course, in about a month and a half, we have Disney Plus as well as Apple Plus. 
as well as, you know, more to come in the spring. So we have the big players are beginning to enter the streaming market. Um, again, Apple and Disney. And so, yeah, the stock has erased pretty much all the gains it had this year and it, it's not the surefire when it was uh, it's still and again this is more of a, a wall street marketing story it's still very much a buy uh for you stockbrokers out there but um it's definitely um has a lot of competition now yeah i think people are scared right or really they're nervous is the term i should be using because you're looking at apple and you're looking at disney who are two titans of industry right oprah winfrey uh semi-famously said uh, just a couple years ago, or just a year ago when they announced Apple Plus, Apple is in the pockets of over 50% of people in the world. All right? Over 50% of people have an iPhone. At least, like, people in society that Oprah would touch, to be fair. I don't want to say 50% <laughs> of the world has an iPhone, but... Uh, 50% of, of Americans. Yes. <laughs> Disney is on a lot of screens, okay? Those are two very big companies. Not only are they both about to release a streaming service, they are undercutting Netflix's price. Netflix, who just recently lost The Office and is losing other NBC-like comedies to NBC's streaming service. Netflix, who doesn't really have that many good movies nowadays. Netflix, who is definitely becoming one of those services who you wonder why you still subscribe, Right. Mm-hmm. It's starting to be a problem, and I don't know what Netflix is going to do about it. It sounds like people who are in stocks don't don't know either. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, and it's and it's important to note like this isn't just Apple and Disney, like you said, NBC and all these other IP holders are pulling their Netflix licenses, and they're they're trying to starve Netflix of content and start their own streaming services. Again, the streaming wars are here, um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yes, this uh, what what was a pretty hot stock for many years is now uh, maybe in troubled waters. And now they're in a weird spot because keep in mind when they raised their prices in January, their stocks went up. Netflix did better in the stock market when their prices went up because stock markets like that. They like seeing, Hey, we're going to make more money. That's a good thing, right? That's a sign of growth. Now what? Because if you lower your price, that's going to hurt you more, even though more subscribers might jump on. And I don't see Netflix lowering their price, right? Like, why would they go backwards? They may offer some right. new tier. Um, that might be some kind of solution for this. But otherwise, man, it, it looks like troubled waters for Netflix. I don't I don't know what the yeah, future holds the, for them. But. The, the price uh, is a new thing. Because it used to be like 10 11 bucks. 11 like That was what streaming is. And now you have Apple and Disney coming in saying no. Five to seven dollars is what streaming is, and so if you're way above that, like HBO and, and Netflix, it's uh, you know that's a shot across the bow. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep we'll keep it here on off script for more. If you guys want to keep up with what Netflix is doing, uh, hopefully they don't go to the way Movie Pass, but only time will tell. Blood alone moves the wheel of history, <laughs> Andy. Uh, our last story, something sensitive here, uh, not something we talk about often on the show. So I'm excited to dig into this just a little bit. Aurora shooting victims voice fears over Joker in letter to Warner Brothers. Uh, Andy, you found this story just today, actually. Uh, what do you know about this? Um, yeah, so the uh, kind of group or coalition of survivors and family members of the Aurora shooting tragedy from 2012 uh, kind of penned an open letter to Warner Brothers about fears, about that uh, the movie might inspire other people to violence and kind of depraved madness. Um, It's important to note that the theater itself in Aurora, Colorado, where that shooting happened, uh, will not be playing the uh, 
the Joker film, which I, I think, which I'm perfectly okay with. I think that that is a very sensitive move and, you know, cause that's where it happened. Uh, but I do kind of have issues with the, the letter or with the sentiment that, uh, you know, the movie itself is problematic because it might inspire someone uh, to violence. Yes. Um, before we dig too far into this, we're not going to spend much time on it. Uh, we'll be getting to Ad Astra shortly, but real quick. Obviously, this is a very sensitive topic. There's a lot of people who have been hurt and have a lot of pain over this kind of thing. Andy and I do not understand that. <laughs> so no. we're, we're sympathizing. Uh, so excuse any comments that may seem uh, obtuse here. But I, I kind of land in the same boat. This letter they wrote to Warner Brothers explains that, as one woman said, when I see a promo for the Joker... I see the killer, right? I, I see the man seven years ago who walked in and, and injured 70 people and murdered 12. Um, I can definitely understand that fear. Um, and what I can understand is is the idea of running a film of a similar nature in the same theater where something so awful happened. Of course, I get that. That's, sens- that's a sensitive thing, and that doesn't make sense. Uh, to do, I, I would understand Aurora, the, the theater in Aurora not wanting to do that. What's confusing to me is throwing that onto the character um, and, right. and the studio. That, and again, I'm not this person. I'm not these people. Like, I can't possibly claim to understand where they're coming from. Um, but it, 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 it does seem a little misdirected, if that even makes any sense at all. Yes. Um, and, and it's important. You know, I was reading the article that, you know, a lot of these people, um, the survivors do have, you know, severe PTSD that gets set off by different things, different settings that there are. And so I, I definitely don't want to discount if someone sees that and becomes very uncomfortable. Um, however, from an artistic front, yeah, I think it's unfair to somehow place blame on a fictional character um, when at, at the base of it all was someone who wanted to commit terrible violence and we don't need fiction to commit terrible violence. Uh, you know, there was another comment in this article that, that someone said, well, they felt it was a little ill-timed because of a number of recent shootings in the last few months. And again, I feel like that's misdirected because a, there's a shooting almost every month, which is its own problem, but also it's pointing the finger at the wrong part of the problem. Yeah. I, it's, it's it's a challenging thing. It, it's something like you said uh, when we were talking about this before the show, trying to figure out how we were going to address this. Um, you know, it seems it 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 just seems a little misdirected to to cast like that fear onto a fictional character. And if the person who came into that theater and did that horrible thing uh, was somehow inspired by a character, like they weren't they weren't far off from doing something awful anyway. You know, like you can't say. An animated, an animated character, comic book villain is the is the sole reason this the happened. catalyst, right? Yeah, yeah. People um, at the end of the day, people are still responsible for their their own actions, and sure. And again, there's tons of movies that are just as violent, probably if not more violent than this film itself. So how is it any different from like why are you singling that? I mean, I know that the shooter was quote unquote inspired, but. There's lots of movies. He, he could have said any movie. Right. There's no... There's there's never a responsibility on the filmmaker to teach people morality. That's never that's never a thing. Uh, that might be a goal for that for, for a filmmaker, but that's never... That's never like a... They're not like a firefighter, right? Their job isn't to save lives. Like, mm-hmm. their job is to make movies. Right. And also, I... You know, we haven't seen this film yet. I do have my tickets. I'm, I'm seeing it next <laughs> week. Do, yeah. Uh, um, but... 
we also don't know what this is about and it's the the joker is the protagonist but he is not a hero and i don't think the movie is going to portray him as a hero you know the uh, todd phillips touched on a little bit of some of the themes of about you know childhood trauma about the lack of love and compassion and those are important messages um, yeah. And and Warner Brothers also released a statement saying, you know, part of the power of cinema and art is to bring up difficult subjects and have complex conversations about these difficult subjects. Yeah. So it's a tough it's a tough thing. Um, I, I, I don't blame the theater for not running it. When asked for comment, the theater didn't comment. They, they didn't make any kind of formal announcement saying, hey, we're not running it because this reason. Uh, currently, they're not selling tickets to Joker. And when somebody called the 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 box office to, for comment the, the 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 person working just said we're not currently selling tickets to that show like there's no it has not been a big public thing nobody's grandstanding i don't think um so it's it's obviously a tough subject uh and it's something i'm glad we're talking about here um hopefully the movie is you know it speaks for itself i guess mm-hmm. that's the best way to say that uh, and with that, we should get into our uh, reviews. I'm going to be taking the first one here. Uh, Andy is going to take the summary for They Shall Not Grow Old. So please, let's kick it off with the new Brad Pitt film, Ad Astra. This is Major Roy McBride. I'm attempting to reach Dr. Clifford McBride. This is Dr. McBride's son. So Ad Astra is the story of Roy McBride in a uh, near but not so different future where man has uh, really embraced space travel, uh, built a base on the moon, and has discovered these odd um, magnetic power pulses coming from far in the universe. Uh, I think Mars is where they're coming from. Uh, Roy McBride, one day while he's out on the space station or whatever, is nearly killed by one of these pulses that knock out power across the globe, uh, and ultimately is tasked with discovering what they are, traveling to the far edges of the universe to try to find out what's happening and how it may be connected to his father, Clifford McBride, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, it is a kind of a space epic story, certainly sci-fi. Uh, it's coming hot off the heels of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so kind of a return to form for Brad Pitt. Andy, what did you think of Ad Astra? I, re- I really liked it initially, and then kind of the more I've thought about it, there are some issues. Uh, but there's a lot of things that I think it does well and that work, and then there's a number of things that um, leave you kind of scratching your, your head ass. Uh, afterward um but but overall i enjoyed it. i mean i love a good sci-fi movie and it really it swings for the fences it's going for it and it's it's not just you know action in space it's deep it's philosophical it's trying to say something about humanity uh, and so i uh, appreciate all that um for me uh ad astra was one of the worst films I've seen. <laughs> oh, great! We're gonna have a we're I, gonna have a good I, discussion now. I I wanted to get up and leave. Uh, I thought it was so bad. Um, I really didn't like this movie, and it's unfortunate because I think there's a time in my life when I would have, and that would have been before I saw a movie like Interstellar, or right. The Martian, or so many other space films that have done it so much better. Mm-hmm. This movie to me came off as low budget. <laughs> uh, it, it it certainly felt um, pompous. Uh, tra- attempt at taking a stab at being philosophical when it really didn't know what it meant. 
Uh, I was I was very disappointed in this film. I didn't like it at all. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about Ad Astra. Perfect. Um, this is perfect. I assumed you hadn't talked to me about it because you felt the same way and you wanted to save your hot take for the show. Turns out not. So this will be good. We, we, we rarely get to, to, to <laughs> dig into this. Uh, let's start with the first thing, the plot. Right, right. right. Like I said, uh, we've got our Roy McBride played by Brad Pitt who has to travel to, I think it's Mars. I want to say Neptune yeah, in my he head. No, it is Neptune. That's like right. the... F- the far, right the farthest place it's convoluted it's 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 a little convoluted because there's a lot of we'll get into the writing in a second he has to travel to the far reaches of the universe by going to first the moon then to mars then to neptune that's the order right we're jumping mm-hmm. from planet to planet uh um he's got to go with a crew that he kind of hitches a ride with when he's on a secret mission from nasa or spacecom i think is the is the uh fake company that that sends him on his way uh, and ultimately, he has to go find this. Um, well, I hate, I, I hate to give too much of it away, but maybe I have. He has, right. He has to, so, to figure so out what's happening. So it's basically, uh, it's basically Apocalypse Now in space. It, it is exactly <laughs> Apocalypse Now in space. It is um, exactly Apocalypse. I was afraid you weren't going to say that. It is, it is exactly what this movie yeah, is. It's no, Apocalypse Now in space. So we have different stops along the way, and then we have to go find Crazy Old Dad, who's basically Colonel Kurtz. Uh in space right. so so it it is taking a page out of heart of darkness and we get brad pitt is this uh you know he's supposed to be incredibly calm under pressure at the beginning of the movie we hear a, a military brass say oh you know i heard your pulse never got above 80 even during this catastrophic thing you know so he's supposed to be this kind of stoic square-jawed hero who's philosophizing about the world and mankind and his dad um some of that I, I was okay with a, lo- a lot of that, but it um, everything's just so on the nose because it's it's drenched in voiceover. Like you hear Brad Pitt voiceover in the entire time, telling you exactly how he's feeling. So there's a whole lot of telling and not showing. Right, just like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. Right, you have these set yes. pieces. <laughs> you have him traveling on the ship, traveling through space, just like they travel down the river in Apocalypse Now. And while that's happening, you get these montages of like shots within shots and voiceover of Brad Pitt very calmly explaining how he's feeling about the whole thing and maybe a little backstory about his dad is who's, you know, they're going to find. And then they stop at a planet or they have some kind of malfunction on the ship and they have to deal with it, right? And this little ragtag crew has to figure it out. Um, and some of them are obviously like scenery, right, for, for Brad Pitt to chew on and others are... Um, just kind of basically faceless, you know, who are cannon fodder, you know, at some point down the line for where things are going. Um, here's here's my here's my first big problem with this. Brad Pitt's portrayal of his character Roy McBride is supposed to be a character who's very calm and collected and keeps his BPM down and just has it together all the time. He's a loner. It's explained that he has left his wife because he's totally into this space mission stuff, just like his dad, right? That's his whole thing. The problem with a actor playing a character who is calm, cool, and collected all the time, there's no charisma. There's no enthusiasm. He's, he's, He's just monotone the whole film. He's dry. So none of his lines delivered with any kind of excitement throughout the whole movie. Yeah. It is so dull and boring. <laughs> and I was just bored, especially for a character like Brad Pitt coming out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who was like chock full of charisma in that movie. And this, he just felt 
boring. So, so I heard that this film was kind of pulled in two directions. And you, you really see that on screen because you have all this slow stuff and these long monologues and voiceovers about life and earth and humanity and whatnot. And then there's like a space chase. Then there's, you know, a horror thing that happens on a, on a ship. Uh, it, so it's like someone said, oh, we, we, need, we need some action here. It's too slow. But but then it never really comes together. We have all these essentially dropped plot lines. Like Donald Sutherland is in a character, an important character early on in the film, and then he just kind of disappears. There's a space pirate thing. It kind of disappears. There's a research station. It just never comes back around. And so, and again, that, that just shows that how it was kind of pulled in, in two directions. Yeah, and, and that's that's another issue. Like the set pieces, right, the stops in between stuff, are pretty good, but they really feel unearned. Like, at one point, yeah, they're traveling across the moon, and they're traveling through no man's land where there are space pirates. And before you know it, this scene turns into almost like a dreamlike lunar chase, like something out of of, of, of the 60s James Bond movie, with space phasers and everything. It's insanity. And, and, And just minutes before, it had been Brad Pitt voiceover of nothing happening. And then, like, two minutes later, it's Brad Pitt voiceover of nothing happening. It is wild. And and the the space pirate thing, the no man's land on the moon, that could be its own movie. That could be its own <laughs> thing. Some Mad Max esque like space epic. I've seen I, I, I've seen a ahead. number of hot takes that that said exactly that. That he was yes. like the space pirate thing should be the movie, the entire movie. Yeah, and and like I get why this movie had that in here, right? It's for setting. It's to set the stage of the world and the universe we're in and why things are the way they are. They're space pirates in the world of Brad Pitt's Ad Astra. Fine. Fine. But, like, don't make those parts so bold and don't do them so dynamically next to boring parts of the film because it makes them stand out in a way that feels like you can't ignore them. Like, that was such a cool scene. And it, mm-hmm. it never comes back. It never it never is relevant. It never comes into the fold. Like I said, I thought it was dreamlike because I assumed at first it wasn't actually happening. I was like, oh, right. he must be sleeping or something. Uh-huh. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're exactly right. It, it it just gives it such a, such a weird vibe. And, and again, he talks about this thing. Like, when we first get to the moon, it's, like, been super commercialized. There's an Applebee's on the moon. And there's, like, the Vegas... Las Vegas cowboy and, and everything, and he's talking about like, oh, we're we're on the moon, but we're no far farther from home. We just brought home with us. We're we haven't moved forward as a people. So he says all this stuff, but then it just never comes back because the, the kind of overall message of the entire movie is kind of like the importance of like family and like the importance of what you have versus what you seek. You know that, but all that we don't find that out until the end, and then the beginning is all this stuff about like commercialization and it, it just like it completely gets dropped yeah as far as the writing goes it feels like a lot happened in the editing room like watching this movie that's how i feel especially with the actors who are in it brad pitt and tommy lee jones are not nobodies same with donald sutherland right those those are not nobodies like those are people who are in big movies have had long illustrious careers i don't think these guys pick scripts for nothing i think they looked at this movie and thought something like interstellar or something like the martian and i think with the director james gray who formerly did the lost city of z which was a pretty successful indie film i think they probably thought this thing was going to add up i i looks like watching it that editing is where things went wrong it reminds me of like that early blade runner cut with harrison ford's voiceover that didn't mm-hmm. need to be in there but right. they didn't know how to handle it so they were like well let's Maybe we do voiceover or something that'll be cool. And I'm not saying Brad Pitt's voiceover is unnecessary, but 
There are definitely scenes in this movie where you didn't need it. There were certainly scenes I was watching and thinking to myself, you could have no voiceover here and it would work. Because the soundtrack yeah, there's is so fantastic much. in this movie. We yeah. should talk about that. Yeah, I did definitely love the the score and the music, although I can't think of it. But I remember in the in while I was watching, really enjoying it and really because it, it helps. It this movie is trying to be. It's like two thousand one Junior Apocalypse yeah. Now Junior. Also, you know, so, not like two thousand one. Yeah, you know, so it's starting to reach. It's reaching for that, but it never ever really gets there. And, and part of the brilliance of 2001 is that there is very little dialogue. The the story is literally told through the visuals. You have to really pay attention. Meanwhile, in at Astra, we're like getting loads and loads of Brad Pitt, like just talking for, for ages about God knows what, <laughs> what. Yeah. Uh, this movie did remind me of 2001. It also oddly reminded me of annihilation mm-hmm. um, because annihilation was a fine example of a, kind of small budget indie film that's doing an odd sci-fi kind of thing that really worked. This movie was low budget in a way that personally hurt it. And this may be something that nobody notices, but I noticed it looks like a lot of this movie was shot on like a university campus. Uh-huh. Like there's a, there, uh, there's very few exterior shots in this film of, of the planet earth. There's like, I think I counted. There's like five total. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie Gravity only had like three, to be fair. So I'm not saying you can be a space epic and and not ha- and not have shots of Earth and it can't work. It can, but almost every exterior shot in this film is CGI, or it's shot inside, locally. And a lot of this stuff, like they didn't actually simulate anti gravity. Some of it they did, but a lot of it looks like it was done on wires. A lot of yeah. it was just actors standing there and like slowly bobbing up and down. Yeah, like it's it's so <laughs> obviously low budget compared to what's come before. And that really hurts it coming off something like the Martian or interstellar that really hurt this movie for me 10 years ago. I, I think I would have thought a lot more of it, but now the bar has been set higher. We expect more. At exactly. Least yeah. Didn't quite get there for me. Sometimes I felt like the effects looked really good. Like sometimes the inside of some of the ships, for instance, are really impressive, but then yeah. like you said, some of the exterior shots, it's just like a CGI fest. It just, everything looks like a cartoon. Uh, so, like you said, it's it ends up kind of being all all over the the place. Mm-hmm. Where do we <laughs> go for where do we I didn't go know from if you here? Had any, any any hot takes on that? No. Uh, I think I think honestly the acting is okay. At first, I I really did want to want to say, man, Brad Pitt really phoned this one in. But I, I again, I genuinely think this is somebody working with what they've got. All right. Mm-hmm. Same with Tommy Lee Jones. Same with Donald Sullivan. They're all right. Yeah. They're okay. I, it could have been better. It could have been worse. I think they were working with the script. I, I wanted to bring w- one comparison I've heard uh, that's very good is to uh, Event Horizon actually, <laughs> okay. in in that just kind of the similar setup of one spaceship going after another spaceship and kind of being as inspired by that as by two thousand one and Apocalypse Now and and other similar films. Yeah, I I think that's valid. There there's this is one of those movies that's about the journey, right? It's about making it from point A to point B and the mysteries you'll uncover along the way, right? Whether that be like retrospective about the joys of life uh, and the things you've already missed and stop and smell the roses or the horror of space and the horrible (laughs) things that might come out of that. I think that's why it reminded me of Annihilation. It's definitely why it reminded me of 2001 and certainly Apocalypse Now. Um, 
I, I, I feel so conflicted about it, though, because hearing you say you liked it makes me think, well, maybe I should go back. Maybe I should watch it again and really screw down and listen to the parts that were incredibly boring, you know? But they just, like, visually, it didn't grab me uh, uh, because of the voiceover. At least audibly, I really had had trouble getting into it. The writing is kind of lame. Like it, it feels like it's edited like a mess. I just I I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and one of the you know one of the brilliant things about two thousand one is that so little is explained, and that film is open to so much interpretation. And Ad Astra is the opposite. It tells you exactly what it's thinking and what it's trying to be about. There's very little room for interpretation and kind of other other readings of the film. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think we're ready. Andy, would you recommend Ad Astra? I think I would tentatively recommend... I would save it for streaming. You know, I, I enjoyed it. There's a lot of sci-fi things about it I enjoyed. The, uh, you know, the depiction of near-future space travel, commercial space travel is cool. A lot of the inside of the ships are cool. The score is good. Uh, the depiction of a different planet seems a little bit lazy, but... Um, yeah, it may not be for everyone. It is too slow, and it does feel like a ripoff of a number of other sci-fi and other films. So I think I would save it for streaming. I would not recommend it. Hard pass. <laughs> Hard don't don't pass. watch it on streaming. Uh, the problem is, fundamentally, if you want to watch a space movie, there, there, there are a dozen others I could recommend like that are better in every objectable way. Like It's just a stab at a genre that doesn't quite get there. And James Gray, looking at his kind of filmography, is hit or miss with this stuff. Lost City of Z wasn't exactly a huge hit, but it's definitely left you know some ripples in its wake. This movie doesn't quite make the cut, but I still think he's on track to do good things. I think getting stars like Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones are nothing to scoff at. I'm still anxious to see what he does next. This yeah. one was a misfire for me, so I'd say pass. <laughs> Do you think, can you make a space movie and just enjoy space and not have to, like, be deep and philosophical? Because I feel like, I mean, this reminded me of, like, things like Sunshine and other... Uh, yeah, a little bit. Sunshine, yeah. <laughs> it seems like no one, if you're in space, you have to try to make some deep philosophical statement. You can't just have fun in space. It seems like it. I would say that that new Natalie Portman film coming out, uh, Lucy in the Sky, mm-hmm. um, kind of looks, looks like that. But at the same time, you know that's going to be introspective and about the, the the wonders of life and like, yeah. There's there's something charming about you know the the want for more out there. It's actually a big driver of one of our characters in this film. Um, but I I don't know for some reason film. The, the, the pompous nature, the, the bougie nature of cinematography and <laughs> filmography catches directors every time. It's like it's like it's like a trap the roadrunner run, run into. And, yeah. and sure enough, they're talking about philosophy and, and space and where everything's going. You're right. I don't know why that is. There has to be an example of a movie like that. <laughs> Alien, I guess, is that. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we should talk about our next segment. Andy, you found this. Uh, please take it away. It's time for the death of cinema. So we're going to be talking about an article that came out recently uh, called Downton Abbey, Breaking Bad, and the Rise of the Peak TV Movie. So very recently, we've seen a very successful films that started as tv shows downton abbey this past week surpassed all expectations and beat both rambo last blood and 
Astra to be the number one film of the weekend at 31 million, which is huge for September, huge for essentially a TV movie. Um, and so we're going to be talking about just what what this kind of means for cinema because we've seen a number of other really successful films, and uh, such as next month we have El Camino, the Breaking Bad film, starring uh, I was about to say Jesse Pinkman, Aaron Paul, yeah. <laughs> and all, and another film that I'm looking forward to uh, the is it the Many Saints of Newark, which is a prequel film to The Sopranos, the hit uh, HBO series from uh, the early 2000s. Uh, so this is a, a trend that we're seeing. Um, more and more, and so we're, we're going to be talking about that. Zach, what do you think? What are your hot takes? You know, you sent this article over, and and I saw the headline, and part of me wanted to roll my eyes, and the other part was like, oh, God, we have to talk about this. Because it's true. Um, there's obviously a successful model here, clearly. And I went and saw the Entourage movie a few years ago, okay? <laughs> because I liked Entourage, and I was like, that movie's going to be cool. And, and for, for part of me that liked that series, it was cool. But at the same time, I realize it's not a very good film. And this is where I really hang my hat on the TV movie argument. I think it is very, very difficult to adapt a television series into a two-hour film. I don't know if I've ever actually seen it done in a way that was genuinely satisfying to me and felt like a good, worthy addition to what came before. They're very different mediums. But nowadays, because of streaming, we're in this golden age of television where oftentimes television can feel like you're watching a movie look at things like game of thrones or downton abbey right the production value in that stuff it's practically a film anyway so why not adapt it right right exactly and and the fans want more uh, they always want more apparently there's uh, a tv motto or a motto in tv is six seasons in a movie and, yeah, for community. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So, and apparently, this is applied. This is exactly what happened to Downton Abbey. Same thing. Six seasons and a movie. And they announced the film before the last, the final season came out. And you know, there's a whole timeline uh, that you have to hit as well. Because if you wait too long, there's no interest. If you do it too soon, the, again, the, there's no interest because it, it feels just like another season. So there's, uh, you know, what some executive analyst in this article mentions that that you have about. 10 years and really about better within five years of a show ending to crank out a film uh, of some sort uh, to get that audience back in the theater. Yeah. uh, Jeff Bach is the senior box office analyst at at Exhibitor Relations who's reached for comment on this. He was the one who said it should be about five years. You can look at a movie, at a show like The X-Files. The X-Files had two two movies that came after it came out, right? The first one became... Uh, between the show's fifth and sixth seasons, so that was still going, and earned $189 million worldwide. The second film, The X-Files, I want to believe, came a decade later, in case you remember that, uh, and six years after the series concluded in 2002, it earned $68 million. So there's definitely, like, a sweet spot here, and it seems like we're in it, especially in the age of streaming, right? You want to try to catch people when things are still relevant, but they still have that nostalgia, which is, uh, I think, what's working for Breaking Bad and Downton Abbey right now. My question is... What does this mean for the future of streaming services? Is everything getting a movie now? What, what, where are we going with this? I mean, uh, I think you have to pick and choose your your TV films or series to film movies very carefully. Uh, Breaking Bad, I think, is an exception because Breaking Bad went to streaming before streaming was streaming. <laughs> uh, around two, 20, I remember this, around 2011, because I, I wasn't into the show. It came to Netflix, and it kind of garnered a huge new fan base because people could catch up on the show for the first time. And then 
that meant more people finished out the series and it, it's yeah i think it's one of the best shows ever made and so it makes sense to revisit you know it's had a successful spinoff with uh, better call saul and now and again this is called a breaking bad film so we could get more breaking bad films but you got to choose carefully because i'm sure there's there's examples of, of total bombs it's funny I, i'm in the same boat with netflix i i've, I've said before i think on the show but um in the past, I've said Breaking Bad is one of those series that should never leave Netflix because Netflix did so much for that show. That was exactly where I really discovered Breaking Bad because I remember I, I started watching the show in season four. Like, over halfway through the show's life on television is when I started watching because I had heard so much about it and I really wanted to get into it, but I wanted to go back and see where it had come from and there were articles coming out and Entertainment Weekly, I remember this, an article that said, why season four is the perfect place to jump into Breaking Bad. That is a lie. Do not start watching that show at season four if you've never seen an episode. Start at episode one. That's where you start the show. Episode one, season one. All right, that's that's how it goes. It's progression. And Netflix let me do that. That was the first place I could do that at seemingly no cost to me. I didn't have to go out and buy the box sets for absurd prices. I could just get on Netflix and watch them all at my own leisure. I could binge watch the crap out of it. It was crazy. And I think that hype, right, that's what gets people going on this stuff, that I'll go see a movie. But I don't think you can recapture the magic of the television series in a two-hour film. It's just like a long episode of the show. And, and, and the question I have is, especially for a show like Breaking Bad, maybe we'll save this for our review of the, of the movie. I assume we're going to watch it and review yeah. it on the show, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll save it for the review of the movie. Can you recapture the magic in one long epilogue of a film, right? Is that even possible? <laughs> I mean, that, that's going to be a, a challenge. you got to maybe look at it like a season finale kind of story, maybe a long arc or, you know, in, in Jesse Pinkman's uh, great p- character to, to tie off because we see, we see him liberated at the end of, of the series. But yeah, there's a lot of questions open on what, what kind of happens. Where does he go? What's, what's he do? So I think it's also about picking the right character. I think so. Jesse Pinkman is arguably a loose end. Which is why it works, right? You have one one loose end over here you can grab onto and throw a film on. Maybe that'll work. Maybe it won't. Uh, Sopranos is doing a prequel series. Maybe that'll work, right? Uh, maybe maybe there'll be something to that. They're having James Gandolfini's son play a younger version of him in the film. Maybe that'll grab people in a way. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. I don't know. Only time will tell. And I, I, I haven't watched Downton Abbey, so I can't comment on that. <laughs> so if you're, if you're looking for hot takes on that, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I'm not convinced, I guess is what I'm saying, but we're in a time when this stuff is becoming relevant, whether I'm convinced or not. So hopefully something will come along that'll kind of tip the scale for me. Right. The the Sopranos will be an interesting, um, experiment because that show ended in like 2006. So you're talking, you know, 13, 14 years after the, uh, after it ended, um, and also, a lot of I feel like a, people are much less familiar with The Sopranos as opposed to something like Breaking Bad or Great Game of Thrones because it was back where you had to have HBO uh, in, in order to keep up with the show. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how how that does. The other thing that I that I've read is that you know Downton Abbey shows the power of boomers at the box office because it was mostly geared or most uh, the people that went are over thirty five, uh, mm-hmm. so it's a much older crowd, which a lot of times kind of gets ignored with when it comes to box office things, um, kind of flexing the, their muscle. And again, it beat out franchise the Rambo for Last Blood allegedly, and then uh, you know Brad Pitt on screen for two hours. 
Hmm. Well, for what it's worth, uh, like I said, TV movies are coming, whether I like it or not. Uh, Andy, uh, real quick before we wrap up here, what, what's your hot take here? Are you into all this, or do you think it's a crock? Do you think there's really something here? Is there cinematic value in adapting a television series, or is it just a cash-in? I mean, I, I think I think there could be. I mean, I'm always very open-minded that, that any kind of experiment could work out for the better. Like, anytime someone wants to remake, like, you know, they've been talking about remaking the princess bride and everyone's against it and i'm like well maybe because they you never know uh so oh, so God. i'm 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 yeah. open i'm open and i'm positive about the possibility but it also has a possibility to blow up it all depends on what kind of you know decisions you're gonna make yeah we didn't now that I think about it we didn't talk about the princess bride thing maybe we'll talk about that in a future segment about remakes and how people feel about them but as far as being open-minded for television goes not me i won't change <laughs> I, I, I don't believe in being flexible at the box office. I, I'll spend my hard-earned dollars on, on big-budget Disney films, and that's about it. And speaking of being open-minded, we have one more film to talk about. Andy, you've agreed to take the summary on this one. Please take it away. They Shall Not Grow Old. So this is the World War One documentary that Peter Jackson put out about this time last year, and we've been trying to see this film forever. It it had very limited screenings. It it had screenings at like two p.m. on a Tuesday, um, for, back when we were trying uh, to watch it. And what this is is Peter Jackson has taken all this archival footage, uh, footage that's a hundred years old, some of it older than uh, older than that and restored it into a cinematic way that to make the uh, the conflict and the people of that time more accessible to everyone. And so part of what they've done is they they've colorized it, they've stretched it out to fill the full screen and they've uh they found uh people to do voiceovers, you know, they studied the films to see what they were were saying and you know got lip readers and then uh they also fixed the frame rate because if you look at a lot of old-timey films uh they they were filmed in like you know 10 frames per second or something so everything is moving way way too fast um and they had to use computer software to kind of fill in frames and be able to um, make the footage look normal look like it was filmed you know 20 years ago instead of 100 years ago and and it tells the as far as the story it, we kind of follow the british side of soldiers getting into the war getting recruited going through training getting deployed and then we finish up with kind of the end and we we become very uh familiar with the horrors the the terrible situation and environment and uh, kind of a, just the terrible toll of war in general so that's the the film, and it, it's I uh, heard a lot about it all last year, and yeah, I think it's really brilliant. Zach, what did you think? All right, so I've said this on the show before. I know Andy knows it, but for anybody listening for the first time, my dad is a history teacher, or was a history teacher. He just retired. So I've got an affinity for stuff like this. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the idea of war, I think because of that, because I, I was raised by a guy who kind of taught me how, how bad that stuff can be. Um, but I also love documentary films. I think they are crazy underrated, and I think there's an awful lot you can learn from stuff like this. I was incredibly impressed by this movie. It is incredibly moving. It is very powerful. It's so sincere in a way that I don't know if I've ever seen a war documentary be sincere. 
Um, and it feels so genuine and honest. It's such a clever thing. I think it is a brilliant Peter Jackson film. Certainly not my favorite by him, but I mean, top, probably top three. Uh, and that's including all three Lord of the Rings films. I mean, that. <laughs> um, I really like this movie. I really like this movie and I can't wait to talk about it. We don't talk about documentaries often on this show. So right, if anybody's right. still listening, even though you know it's a documentary, way to go. You're part of like the exclusive crowd um, of listeners who stick around and listen to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, I wanted to say I'm glad we didn't go see Last Blood like um, we thought we may- maybe should because it was a little yeah. bit more popular. Um, uh, well, geez. Uh, well, I want to start kind of with the the structure, uh, oh. kind of form. So we start with the archival footage as it kind of probably looks. Uh, if you just don't do anything to it, you know, we see it's very small. Um, it's everything's moving too fast, but we have this, these voiceovers of, uh, you know, what I assume are, you know, people reading letters and kind of, uh, firsthand accounts of, of people joining the, the conflict. Um, and then maybe about 20 minutes in, then the, all of a sudden the film grows to the size, full size of the screen. It becomes in color and you're like transported in, into the world of the film and, and the, the conflict. And I thought that was an, an incredible thing. And then at the end, we kind of come out of that as well. Yeah. In, in the most candid of ways, and I don't mean for this to sound funny because it isn't, it's a film technique for what it's worth. We get, we got wizard of Oz. Like it starts <laughs> out in black and white. It, it turns into color and it goes back to it at the end. Um, and it's just as effective because one, I haven't seen that technique used in a real long time in film. And two, because you don't see it coming, and when it starts, like the whole the whole way this movie was advertised was its computer restoration, right? Like we use computers to fill in frames and do custom coloring, and like all of this work they went to restore this footage, and we'll get into that. Um, that's what you're expecting. So when it starts up and it's four by three and black and white and super fast and shot on eight millimeter film, whatever they had back then, it feels weird, and you're like, hold on, <laughs> what what's going on here? And that's to really get you into the film, right? Just like Wizard of Oz. It starts out and you, you start f- hearing about these guys in Britain, uh, kids back then, 16, 17, signing up for a war where you were supposed to be 19 or 18, I think was the age. Right. And, and, and talking about how they obviously lied to go do it because they were patriots and they didn't know any better. And that's what you did back then. And they use all these interviews from old BBC interviews and television interviews and radio interviews and letters and phone calls and sit down interviews. They did all of this research to get all this and it's told in a very non non narrative structure i guess there's no hold on i should let andy talk because i've been going yeah, too far with this. Yeah, but ex- explain a little bit what I, where i'm coming from so we're, we don't follow any one character or any one person it's just what it was like being a soldier at that time enlisting um in, in into what w- would be the one of the biggest conflicts uh, ever in the world and and again you had people that were boys 15 16 saying that they were you know old enough and and it was this it, you know it's very heartwarming in cuz they all you know they're like well it's it's our it, we have a duty to do we we have to we have to defend you know uh, stand up for what's right. It's very noble uh, initially as they get into it. You know, everyone signs up with without any any thought. And it's only as they get kind of closer and closer to uh, the conflict that, that they they start to maybe rethink things a little bit. And it's incredibly immersive in its presentation because in most documentaries, right, especially war documentaries, you're going to have 
old archival footage, and then it's going to cut to an old dude in a room with some goofy backlight behind him, you know, <laughs> and his name pops up at the bottom of the screen, and it's like, Corporal whatever, 43rd Infantry, and he's talking about his time at the war, and then it cuts back to archival footage, and then cuts back to another old dude talking about his thing. This movie never does that. It never cuts to present. It never cuts to a guy. You never get a name of who's talking ever. And there are what sounds like hundreds of men talking in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, You never get a reference to what you're seeing on screen. It's never explained what battle you're watching. It's never explained what town you're watching or who these people are walking by. It's just like a video essay. It just rolls the tape and then has people talking over it. It's it's wild and I love it. It's revolutionary and it's different and it totally keeps you in the world of 1914 to, was it 1914? 19, yeah. yeah, 1914 yep. to 1918 when World War 1 happened. It completely immerses you in it, which makes it perfect when the color kicks in. Right. And and part of what what I think a lot of people don't realize is uh this war was so horrific, more so than World War 2 and a lot of other wars because we had the the arrival of 20th century offense, but we're still using 19th century defense, you know, so you would have, you know, people on horseback charging machine guns and it took, you know, several thousands, tens of thousands of people dying before they realized, Oh, we can't really overrun the machine gun ever. We should maybe do something else. And that's where we eventually get into trench warfare, which the, the film dedicates a lot of time to just showing what that was, what was it like being there, living in those conditions. Yeah, and it highlights like exactly how it was boots on the ground on a personal basis across like the trench. And let me explain what that means. There is no cutaway to a world map where they explain that, well, on on this day, Britain charged these guys and Germany. Never happens. There's no macro look at the war. There's no explanation of allies or Axis or who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. This is British troops in trenches fighting Germans. That's it. There's never any, like, at one point, one of the guys says, he's like, we didn't even know if we were winning or losing the war. This was just our lives. This was just what we did. We went to sleep standing up in the muck in the trench, and we woke up, and one of the guys next to us was dead. It was horrible. And it's like, it's vibrant in a way that, like, documentaries normally aren't because it feels so human. It's just these guys' individual retellings of what they experience, not how the whole world saw the war, just them. Like, it feels so genuine. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, specifically the trench stuff, I mean, they're talking about, you know, sleeping on frozen ground, you know, getting trench foot, which is a nice way of saying gangrene and you're going to get your foot chopped off. Um, You know, rats, disease, zero sanitation, no food. Um, and now it does kind of make, and this is only cause I know a little bit about world war one. It makes a big jump from the beginning to about what would be year three to four. Um, because they didn't have things like helmets for the first two, two years. It took them a while to be like, Hey, we need metal helmets because of shrapnel and other things, which is, is another incredible part of, of the film is the depiction of artillery and mortar fire. Um, because, and again, this is another part where technology was kind of on both sides, where you had guns that could shoot mortars, uh, you know, miles, but you had to pull them by horse, or you had to lay track yeah. and pull them by train. But they, they've done some incredible sinking where, where they show mortars landing, and, it, and it, it reminded me of, like, the D-Day scene in, in Saving Private Ryan, where it feels like you are there as it's, as it's happening. It's really incredible. 
Yeah, and it's, again, it, it feels so real because it's real footage. At the end of the film, uh, it's specified in the credits. They don't, they don't specify where any of the footage took place exactly because I think in a lot of ways they didn't even know. They weren't even sure, like, where this footage they found actually happened. It just says, filmed on the Western Front from 1914 to 1918. Um which is like horrifyingly real in a lot of ways because that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Like you see a mortar go off and like you see a guy get blown up. You're like, that was a real person that actually happened. That is not a movie effect. That is not CGI. Like it's some wild stuff, man. And it just, the movie does a clever job of cutting away from the horror and back to more candid kind of reality and the, and kind of the, the odd humor in war that people found this, this odd, you know, camaraderie men had, and then it'll cut back to bad and then good. It Mm kind of weaves it in a way that doesn't feel too overbearing. I think. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I remembered is, you know, they talk about the wounded and they said, you know, everyone was more scared of being wounded than being killed. Cause one said, well, once you're killed, then that's just it. Or, (laughs) or, you know, you know, the guy said, you know, you don't, when you're, you know, carrying bodies off the field or trying to tend to the wounded, he's like, you don't have to worry about the dead. They're dead. You don't have to do anything to him, but it's it's the guy that's still alive, that's still breathing, that you gotta get it, get back, and try to rescue and haul haul behind behind the lines. And so, yeah, there's this this candidness, and there's also just a lot of the mundane things, like even when they're not on the lines, they're having to like build stuff and construct or clean or do all this manual labor while they're allegedly supposed to be resting uh, just off the the front lines. But man, yeah. that like the the shelling stuff is really incredible, and uh, people don't realize like this was the first time that like they had invented again artillery fire, and I mean it was like nonstop bombardments. You're talking millions of shells being shot at at each other, and it's just like you get a feel for what that must have been like to have that exploding over you constantly, day in and day out. So we should talk about the restoration a little bit. I think uh, yeah. before we get into kind of where this film wraps up, because I would like to talk about the ending a little bit. I know it's a documentary and we're not a spoiler show, but also it's a documentary. Yeah. Like, and it's, you know, it, <laughs> the war ended. It, it kind of already spoiler. happened. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert for 101 years, but let's talk about the restoration before we get into that. Um, man, this movie looks incredible. It's a little uncanny Valley in a couple times, but I thought it was fantastic. What did you think? Uh, yeah, it looks amazing. Like the, the adding the color, the color alone makes it come alive. The whatever they've had to do to to fix the frame rate also helps. And it and it does, I mean, it ends up things like a little fuzzy a lot of times because but the but the the positive outweighs that. Like it just it looks so real. Um and then things like the voiceovers where they literally sat there and figured out what this person was probably saying and then synced a voice to it so it it it's like any other kind of documentary you would um, watch. Yeah, and they would go to the trouble. I mean, like, it's so painstakingly accurate. They would go to the trouble to, like, identify correct accent at that time of where that soldier probably came from, so what he would sound like. As far as the computer frames go, um, it's like you said, back then they were filming on smaller film and they were hand-cranking their, their cameras, so oftentimes you're not cranking at exact speed. You were cranking too slow at 10 frames a second which means when you play it back now, it comes back fast. So in order for it to look like normal speed, you have to have extra frames filled in. And that's where a computer would do that. It would identify the two frames and put one, kind of stitch one in between. Most of the time, it looks really good. 
sometimes it looks a little uncanny valley like i said uh there's a close-up on some faces every once in a while that are in motion that will look weird it'll look like they're morphing a little bit and mechanical things look a little odd you'll see like a tank tread roll by and that looks a little bit like cgi just because like you know a computer had to fill in the blanks so it is cgi Mm -hmm. but uh the color is a little hyper hyper real it's a little too much but it like when you're watching the film because of the slow trans progression from black and white to color you're kind of convinced while you're watching it, you know? And really, you're just enamored at the look of it because you've never seen World War One footage like this before. It doesn't exist other than this movie. Yeah. It's baffling to watch. Um, it's really mind-boggling. Yeah, the the scenes with with the tanks are, are pretty incredible. And again, this was... Uh, there was a huge difference from the beginning of the war to the end. At the beginning, you, you had men on horseback, uh, people charging machine guns, and by the end, we have aircraft and we have the beginning of, of tanks. So I do, I do want to talk about the end of the movie a little bit. Like I said, this isn't a spoiler show, but come on. It is what it is. It's a documentary. It happened a long time ago. I feel fine about talking about it. Um, man, this movie really has kind of a, a, a fascinating punctuation on the horrors of war, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it ends and all of these guys go back home and they, they explain. They're like, nobody asked us about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Like, our moms didn't say, so how was the war? It, it was just, get like, slide back into the mainstream, slide back into life, and act like it never happened. Mm-hmm. Which is horrifying. Uh, for, for what these guys experienced, for what we just watched throughout the film, for them to get to the end and realize nobody, they, they had nobody to tell their story to. But also, that a second war wasn't far behind. Right. And that nothing was learned from that, and nothing changed. And, like, it's this, it's this fascinating retrospect of history. To look back and see that, like, maybe it didn't matter. Maybe it did. I don't know. But but the point of this documentary is that, like, it did in some fashion. It's a piece of history and it matters, you know. And mm-hmm. that, that makes it feel so much more poignant when the credits roll. Yeah, and, and that's what they... At, towards the end, they have footage of them capturing Germans. And at, by that point, no one cares who's winning or who's, like, they, they don't even know why they're fighting. They're just... They just want it to be over both sides. Um, and yeah, and it's really heartbreaking that they said, yeah, no one wanted to hear about it. No, no one cares what you did. Cause everyone had, you know, a very kind of probably idealistic version of what war was. You know, you didn't, obviously you didn't have TV or radio or anything to actually accurately depict it. So it was just like, yeah, whatever happened, happened there. Um, and they said, you know, people had a hard time um, finding jobs that people didn't want to hire ex-military, uh, you know, for, for a number of reasons. Um, and and you're right. It it does it teaches us a lesson, but also that it teaches us a lesson that we forget those lessons. <laughs> since yeah. the Second World War and 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 many since. And you know, when you look at the 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 numbers of some of these, you know, to put things in perspective, you know, the Vietnam War we lost about sixty thousand men in the uh, on the U.S. side, and that's that's an incredibly high number. That number would be unacceptable today in today's conflicts. In World War One, you were losing that many men in a week, you know, or in some cases in one like battle or one yeah. the first day of the first battle, losing twenty thousand men because uh, again, the, a lot to do with the the technology of warfare at, at the time. So it's just it's unbelievable the amount of, of lives lost, and we get that they said over a million uh, British um, troops or people in the British Empire. Yeah, and and I think that makes it so much more poignant, right? Because at the end of a documentary, I think most documentaries should pose some kind of question, 
or, or, or make you question yourself or your morals or what you know in some way. I think the best documentaries do that, right? They, they, they un- unveil a truth that maybe you didn't see that see before. And this movie does that in, in more ways than one. The, these kids who signed up for the war, be, not because they didn't know any better, but because they were supposed to, you know? is it Was that right or was that wrong? Were they supposed to feel that way? Did it actually matter at the end of the day? How did it affect these guys over time, you know? What, what lasting impressions did all of this have? And in some weird way, it feels like because World War One is so overshadowed by World War II... It wasn't that important, but by the time you get to the end of this movie, like you really feel like it was, and that's mm-hmm. so effective in a way that I don't, I don't often see documentaries being, and I really respected it. I really did. Mm-hmm. Same here. Same here. So, Andy, uh, would you recommend "They Shall Not Grow Old"? Uh, absolutely, it's definitely one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It's a incredible look into the conflict of World War One. The footage itself is incredible. The restoration of it, it really takes you in there. It again, it raises a lot of questions about the why do we fight? Why do we engage in these in, un- unbelievable conflicts? And even though we haven't had one in a long time of this size, you know, there's never. It could it could always happen again. You know, we had had two of these. Uh, I will say, content warning: it's it's this is rated R. There is a lot of violent imagery. There's lots of photos, lots of still photos of um, dead bodies, corpses, uh, war injuries, that sort of thing. Uh, so, just content warning for that kind of stuff. But absolutely recommend it. Yeah, I I would recommend it as well. In in spades, I I I thought this movie was great. I love this movie. Uh, I can't wait to show it to my dad. I, I hope he hasn't seen it yet so I can watch it with him. Uh, you're, you're right on the content warning. There's some corpses in this movie. It's ugly. It's rated R. Like, it, it is what it is. Uh, um, and that's... It's it's not it's not gratuitous, though. I really don't think that. It, it's it's. I think they understood when they were making it, listen, we can't we can't exactly lay this on people, you know, in, in the way that maybe we feel like we should. For, for good reasons. It's so clever and creative, and it's such a cool way to do a documentary that I haven't seen before. Um, not only does this get a ring endorsement, I'm anxious to see what uh, uh, our man Peter Jackson does next. As far as I can tell, he's working on a Beatles documentary right now, which I can't imagine will be as captivating as this, but we'll see. Um, I really like this movie. This is a great Peter yeah. Jackson film. I genuinely mean that. Right, yeah. It, it's really incredible to have someone like Peter Jackson who has, you know, hit kind of the highest highs in film with the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then t- to see him still take that creative power and make this incredible documentary. So it's great that he's still making great film. Yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning. This is the first film he's formally directed since The Hobbit 3 in 2014. It's been four years. And then he comes out with this. Fantastic. So many directors have dropped off the map after a film that was not that fantastic. Um, he comes back with this. It's, it is it is a brilliant work. I really enjoyed it. I think this movie is really good. I need to get the Blu-ray. Like, I, I thought it was that good. I love this movie. Um might be on my top 10 list although it, i guess it came out last year didn't it yeah i'm not sure when the, the, it's official u.s release because it, i don't think it was actually up for yeah. the oscars so it, uh we'll see imdb says 2018 for what it's worth so if you believe that maybe you won't see it on my top 10 list but that's it for this week on off script uh andy what are we watching I guess we're taking next week off, aren't yeah, we? we? That's that's what we're watching next week. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're taking a break next week. Uh, there's not a whole lot 
uh, showing. Let me just uh, pull up some of these. Uh, well, the, the Judy Garland biopic is coming to Netflix. Um, there's a family-friendly animated film called Abominable, and that's kind of the uh, the big two releases of next week. Not too big, and but we are waiting <laughs> because the week after is joker which we were both very very excited about which now feels weird after that, that article this yeah it feels weird for <laughs> now but it's okay but that's what's happening bold cinema continues and i already have I, my tickets i am excited to see joker as well and believe it or not i'm a little stoked to see uh judy which is the renee zellweger judy garland biopic i think it's called judy yeah i actually do kind of want to see that so if that's not your scene maybe we won't watch it for the show but keep an eye out maybe we will in a couple weeks we'll be back and you'll find out what we watched then but check out joker when it comes out so you can check out the review with us and if you've seen ad astra or they shall not grow old or maybe have some hot takes on joker or jonah hill and batman or netflix losing its gain or anything else let us know in our email inbox at uh, offscriptfilmreview at gmail.com. I got that right. No, not even close. Mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Good God, where did that come from? <laughs> Mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Our website is offscriptfilmreview.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're hanging out. We're on YouTube, even. Andy puts stuff on YouTube. It's insane, and it's really cool. So go go like and subscribe if you can swing it. And rate and review. Or do whatever <laughs> you can to support your local podcast. Not just us, but all the podcasts you listen to. We're all struggling together. And from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.